0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
1: hello this is eat sleep work with you. I'm Bruce Daisley. it's a podcast about making work better so a quick additional episode to drop into your timeline Uh, Right now, it's just uh, I ran a Twitter Spaces. I've run two of them in the last week. First one started disastrously badly because I was on mute for the first four minutes. I have this really extensive intro that no one heard. Um, And the second one I just ran on Thursday this week with Scott Galloway. So Scott Galloway if you're interested in marketing or technology, then you'll know that Scott Galloway is one of the most lucid and provocative people talking about those things. And I was he opportunism just goes to show someone said, how did you get Scott Galloway? Because uh, he's sort of a a fantastic guest. And as he says, COVID's been very good to him. He's, he's sort of been in the news a lot. I got him because um, he, he does his own podcast called pivot. And he's a Twitter stockholder. And I heard him say that he wanted to try out a Twitter spaces and I emailed him there and then, and he replied on the, uh, the, the, the following Monday. So, um, so just an illustration, uh, that, you know, you, you got to try your luck on those things anyway. So we have a discussion to around a 40 minute discussion at one point. I was getting a lot of people pinging, asking to join the conversation Difficulty I found from the first one I did last week is that people can end up saying random things. Uh, You know, someone comes along and tries to pitch their wellness company or someone. I I got someone today who's pinging me saying, I'd love to ask Scott what he thinks about the, um, the shootings in Atlanta. I was like, I get it. It's a big, serious issue. That's just not what we're talking about right now. You know, I'm not going to ask him about Biden's 1.9 billion. I'm just not going to ask those things. It's not the theme we're talking about. And so uh, I did bring one speaker to the floor. That was Lindsay Patterson, who uh, is a senior person at a a big marketing agency, WPP. But so you'll hear her joining along the way. And she she asks uh, a, a great question there. Really good discussion. I think a lot of these things are up for... Debate and discussion. I think Scott generally errs on the side of believing that offices have got a right, really important role. It, it, probably more than anything, he talks a lot about how actually we're all playing game theory and we're all trying to work out to navigate our own way. So, you know, there's a lot of things that probably I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, they would meet with New Work Manifesto seal of approval in the sense that, you know, he talks about. In your 20s and 30s, you want to work as hard as possible. You want to be in the office to have as much face time. And I guess it's a candid and Machiavellian sort of candid take on the way that we work and how we can get the best from the office. Anyway, brilliant discussion. I'm so delighted I managed to record it because they don't make that easy, let me tell you. And one of the weird consequences of Twitter Spaces being this sort of virtual chat room where people are babbling away and chatting away and they can request and uh, little things sort of ping on your screen is that you will hear along the way little bleeps. And that's, you've just got to imagine, I'm not listening to a podcast, I'm listening to a live chat room and it's given me these little bleeps of little things happening can't mute them. You can't take them away. So I'm I'm not going to cry necessarily about it. So uh, here it is. Here's my Twitter spaces discussion with the uh, New York Stern University business professor, Scott Galloway. And he's got a, a book out that I've enjoyed listening to in the, the last uh, few days called Post Corona. One of the best things he talks about actually in that, before I jump into the discussion, he says... We're in it. You know, you might recognize some of this. He says that human beings don't note the passage of time. They note change. And that's why paradoxically it can feel like there's been no change in our domestic scenario. And then in the world of work, there's been a phenomenal amount of change. And it's sort of this, this paradoxical thing that we notice change, not time, which I thought was a really timely reminder of like the, the situation we're in. So here's my discussion with Scott Galloway. So uh, we're just going to wait for people to join. I, I actually ran one of these last week, um, one of these Twitter spaces last week. And <clears throat> I mean, it was, it was broadly fantastic. There was some really good conversation, um, these really good dialogue. And I, I think we're going to have a bit of fun today. The one thing I would say is that probably my main learning from doing this last week is that I was on mute for the first four minutes. And, um, you know, in hindsight, The the, the problem was this. It was that what you can do uh, just to help you navigate your way around what we're looking at here. um, You've got this weird selection of emojis that you can use at the bottom of the screen. I mean, if if you take a look, there's the hundred, there's the fist, there's the peace sign and there's the waving hand. And then there's the tears. Who chose that selection of emoji? I really don't know. Anyway, I opened last week. I was on mute for four minutes. Some, ass hat kept throwing up the hundred emoji i thought i was i thought i was on a rich vein of form i thought i was killing it and then suddenly i looked down i saw i was on mute so um so anyway the the uh, scott's joined us hello good evening good afternoon scott
2: uh hi bruce thanks for having me
1: thank you good good to have you here um yeah so the the way that this generally works is i think we're keeping in the spirit of the original twitter spirit that we're going to try rather than do these things never ending and meandering on for hours we're going to try and do it short and focused so it's the equivalent of a 140 characters it's just going to be a, a quick 30 minute one um, and i'm de- delighted that scott's going to be here so look if I, I know that some people generally in these things start requesting um, to speak straight away, by all means, you know you can do that later on. But if you've got something you really intently want to say, if you can tweet it at me, then I'll get a, a better sense. Last week I started giving the microphone to people who were selling office furniture, people who were trying to hawk their stuff. It just—it wasn't ideal. If you tweet what you're interested in saying, it probably will help us do a better conversation. So, uh, hello, thank you for joining us, Scott. Where are you today? I'm in
2: Delray Beach, Florida.
1: Nice. And uh, have you been there for most of the the lockdown period?
2: Yeah, I split time between uh, Soho, New York. I teach at NYU and my uh, family is in a small town just south of Palm Beach called Delray. And since COVID, I used to commute to New York Sunday to Thursday night on planes a lot. And now I'm maybe once every six to eight weeks I'm in New York. So it's been transformative for me a lot of time at home.
1: It's interesting because a lot of us have sort of started calls and conversations in this time asking where people are. And I just wonder if it, like an obsession with location like that is going to feel uh, a bit irrelevant. There's, there's a new story in the UK today, which is the, the BBC, the sort of the main broadcaster, have announced they're moving a whole heap of jobs out of London. And it just seems like such a wasted opportunity. The best thing they could have said is that, you know, we exist for a, the the new generation. We're going to make half of all of our jobs completely remote instead they've sort of they've done strange thing of moving a few of them to different cities and it seems like a decision from a previous era do you think we're going to think less about sort of specific location as we go into things
2: i think it's situational so you mentioned young people i find it generally speaking young people want to be in an office they want to they want to find mentorship they want to find mates one in three marriages and relationships begin at work and also they're just not getting around it proximity to headquarters is correlated to career acceleration and some of the advice I give to young people is, is before you start collecting dogs and spouses put on a suit put on a pantsuit whatever it is and get into headquarters because if you are generally speaking there's three people qualified for every promotion And the person who usually gets it is the one who has the strongest relationship with the person making that decision. And relationships are a function of three dimensions and proximity. So I think that there'll be some unintended consequences of the remote work, specifically the cohort that will incur probably the the most negative impact will be women. We've already seen female labor participation in the workforce regress to where it was in the 80s. Because when, when uh, households decide to move further away from the office and they decide, okay, one of us needs to stay at home, it's almost always the woman. And also the shutdown in schools uh, has largely, or the dispersion to remote learning for children, that responsibility. When we say remote learning, we're basically saying that now mom has to sit next to your eight-year-old and teach. And so we've had really uh, uh, a significant I would call negative externality around women in the workforce, around remote work. And the other thing, sort of be careful what you wish for. There's a lot of positives around remote work and a lot of articles about how the world's going to change. But if your job can be moved to Denver or Dover, it can be moved to Delhi. We're, we're going to see a lot of tech companies use this as a means of outsourcing more and more of kind of not, not white collar or blue collar, but kind of purple collar, the stuff in between. Will be outsourced, and we're going to see more and more situations like Uber, where there are seven million drivers making minimum wage, and then you know fourteen thousand people at, H- at HQ making a lot more than that. I think it's I think it's going to have some unintended consequences that aren't as optimistic as is uh, we're hoping for.
1: The point you make there about sort of that wanting to be in headquarters it does raise the sort of the the subtext of a lot of what's gone on and you mentioned specifically the fact that women have been pushed out of the workforce and have, have really sort of representation gender representation has definitely suffered it, it does sort of raise that question that a few companies have already started talking about that maybe em- employees will be prohibited from going to the office more than one day a week two days a week three days a week to sort of prevent that hack where someone can go into the office look like eager steve and suddenly find himself on a fast track to promotion and even the the mere thought of that seems to be either engineering work to avoid office politics or setting us up for just a new era of politics and, and even this time when we're all meant to be feeling optimistic about the transformation this sets up it immediately makes us think oh wow this is just going to be worse or more complicated D- is that right do you think that
2: so a lot there. So we, we talk about office politics um, through the lens of kind of a critical filter. And office politics are, to a certain extent, no different than socializing your dog or your children. And that is, if you have great EQ skills and the ability to establish connection, the, establish, the ability to create alliances, not offend people to get things done. I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, as usual, I always digress to stories about me, but My uh, my first job out of college was at Morgan Stanley. And my I forget we call it uh, squaremate or my um, um, uh, the person I sat next to, he stayed at Morgan Stanley for 25 years. And by most uh, by most metrics, people look at my career and think I've been more successful because I've started companies that have gone on to do well. We both kind of ended up in the same place economically, and he with a lot less stress and a lot less up and down. Our ups and downs. And the reason why is because or one of the reasons I had to take a riskier route and achieve more what I'll call relative success to get to the same place is I didn't have the skill set to be successful in a large organization. We have a tendency to romanticize entrepreneurship and diminish just how powerful the greatest wealth generator in the history of mankind and that is the western european and the u.s organization a large corporation kids come to my office hours they never want to talk about brand strategy or digital marketing what i teach they want to talk about their careers and they say well, i got an offer from google or an offer amazon but me and a few of our buddies are thinking about starting a company and my general response is don't be an idiot go to work for amazon because on a risk-adjusted basis if you have the skills to navigate uh to to navigate the politics of an organization, these are incredible platforms. And I'm not saying don't pursue entrepreneurship, but everyone assumes that because you're an entrepreneur, you're more talented. The reason I'm an entrepreneur is I didn't have the skills to navigate the politics or the socialization of large organizations. And if you have those skills, I mean, I think a lot of that was because uh, I was an only child. But we can do the therapy session later. But you. I think that you know that we look at office politics as, as a negative. Well, it's no more a negative than socialization or getting your kids to play with other kids so they develop skills and how to build teams and no one to lead, no one to follow, no one to get out of the no one to get out of the way. If you look at Facebook, Apple, and Amazon, actually Facebook, Google, and Amazon, they're actually increasing their square footage in cent- urban centers like London. And New York, because young people want to be in urban centers, and they want to they want to go to lunch together, and they want to herd. Uh, and the majority of the reporting around this, because it's done through the lens or the filter of someone of my uh, generation or someone in their thirties or forties, the office is seen as a negative. Whereas I think younger people, really talented younger people, actually see the the office as a as a positive. So I don't. I think that you're going to see a net uh, gross destruction in demand for commercial office space of, I think, 20 to 30 percent. Because the reality is, well, most of us are going to return to the office. We're just going to return to it two to three days a week as opposed to five. And if that results in a destruction of 20 to 30 percent of what is a 12 trillion dollar asset class in the U.S., you're talking about two to three trillion dollars dispersing from. REITs and office owners to residential. And as a result, you're seeing, you know, no one would have expected residential prices to hit all time highs in the midst of a pandemic. But that's what they've done. Lumber prices have doubled. Uh, anyways, I'll stop there. But I, I'm fascinated, yeah. but I'll call the second order effects here. Yeah, absolutely. But the really intriguing thing is, to some extent, the,
1: the notions of workplace culture, or workplace perks, benefits have been defined, even for people outside the tech category, have been defined by these sort of big iconic brands that have really used sort of workplace culture as this marketing vehicle. And it does beg the question going forward. Firstly, what's their take going On this going to be? How can the big tech firms differentiate themselves from the the uh, the also runs? Could it be that people say you will have a dedicated desk and that's our perk, or that you'll have a you can book an enclosed office for a certain time a week? Uh, How how are they going to try and differentiate themselves and and sort of separate themselves from? Largely now, it's going to be if if any firm can offer you the opportunity to work from home, it's it's much harder to get a differentiation there. I thought in the
2: benefits and perks. It's an interesting point. So I have an online education startup called Section Four. And we had this incredibly talented young man who was doing really well. We liked him. I know he liked us. And he came into my office and said, I'm leaving for Google. And I was just flummoxed. I'm like, hmm. Oh my God, what why? I just have I'm just shocked. And he said, I love it here. I'm making good money here. And he described his job at Google and he was going to go sell adwords into chilies or something i'm like god that sounds awful and he said yeah and may, this might have been him just trying to make me feel better but i said be honest with me why did you leave and he goes i'm working at home i'm bored i'm not meeting anybody and he goes i want uh, they, they're really smart they show google shows recruit takes recruits and shows them yeah uh, google's most um i think their strongest recruiting tool is their cafeteria and they create this sort of Xanadu happy hour, legitimate happy hour vibe, where you, you come in, you go, to, you go get an amazing meal, you're with all these people, you go see Malcolm Gladwell speak at five, and then they have happy hour with, they taste different IPAs. I mean, it's basically kind of summer camp, or it's a cross between MIT summer camp and The Bachelor And he just said, I want more socialization in my life. And if I'm gonna work 12 hours a day, I want socialization injected into my life. So um, these companies, their secret sauce is they continue to attract the best kind of young human capital. And people that age wanna herd. And so uh, it'll be interesting, but they can afford, they can afford to build big campuses and centers. Also the death of cities has been greatly exaggerated. Everyone's saying how people are gonna move out of cities. And they talk about San Francisco. San Francisco is just like American healthcare, it's expensive to bad. But people aren't leaving San Francisco to go to Modesto or Lubbock. They're leaving San Francisco to go to another city, Austin or Miami. So I think cities are still going to be incredibly attractive and actually see a rebound. We're already seeing a rebound in real estate prices in New York.
1: Yeah, although if if there's some estimates that say, I think Morgan Stanley estimated that around a, a quarter of the demand for commercial real estate will disappear. And it's hard to see residential real estate filling that with the same yield on it. So, you know, I would guess that firstly I think there's a thrilling opportunity if we think sort of system thinking the one thing that we've really lost from big cities in the last decade 20 years is artists you know and cities cultures really thrive when you've got these sort of subcultures living and and countercultures so maybe for the first time we're going to have artists back in city centres but it, I struggle to see how real estate prices are going to stay at the same level um, for commercial or residential when you've got such a, a an inflow of, of new real estate it, it's interesting you know one of the things that's often said is that all of the disruption we've seen in retail has been when 15 16 17 percent of retail went online and if 20 percent, 25 percent of commercial real estate m- navigates and, uh, and migrates from uh from being for firms into residential the the sort of ripple effect of that is surely going to be far bigger than we we even can begin to imagine right now
2: yeah yeah i think you're right Bruce. i think you don't want to be if you want to talk to people in denial, get a group of theater owners, commercial real estate owners, and doctors in a room. And commercial real estate, I, I just think it's going to get hit so hard because a lot of commercial real estate is leveraged 70%, 80%. And if they get a 10 20 30% decline, you're just going to see a lot of tier two commercial real estate just go away. Mm. Uh, residential, we're seeing record prices. And so in New York, the high end's been coming down for a long time. The opportunity you're talking about that's exciting is New York has kind of become almost like, well, you're in the UK. I remember going into, I think it was the Mayfair district or, and basically there was no one living there. It was all incredibly wealthy people who were using these $15 million townhouses as their summer homes. And the kind of community had died. If New York real estate comes down, we're losing a lot of our um, baby boomer billionaires in the city, mostly for tax reasons. Ah, uh, they're sitting on unrealized gains, and they can move to Florida or Texas and avoid taxes when they when they when they realize those gains. But yeah, I think you're going to see a new generation of worker move into the cities because if a, a studio in Brooklyn is no longer three thousand dollars but is two thousand, that's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, and I think London will probably experience the same shedding of skin, and hopefully see, like you said, the artisan class have an opportunity to move back in.
1: One, one of the things that's really intriguing for me is that it's almost, you know, narrative bias. We sort of we can't help but look at the moment we're in in time, thinking, "Oh right, that's all the change behind us," and. And um, I'm just intrigued at the moment. We're still holding on to the idea that creativity and innovation needs to be in the room together. And so we're all ha- ho- holding on to this notion that work will be in some way hybrid or, you know, whether it's hybrid where we go into the office two or three days a week or whether we go into the office one week a month or some version of that, but we're still hanging on to these ideas that were hybrid. I saw something really fascinating though, that JJ Abrams, um, a couple of weeks ago, he was, he was interviewed somewhere. And he said his first instinct when it came to sort of working in lockdown was that creativity, you couldn't do it unless you're in the room together. And the, the next thing he said is that because there wasn't an option, we've realized that it's very, it's perfectly easy. Once you've, you've developed the muscle, it's perfectly easy for you to do creativity in a different way and it has the added benefit of making the creative process more diverse because you can have someone dialing in from Bogota, you can have someone dialing in from from Europe or or whatever. And so I just wonder if at the moment we're still looking at this thinking, how do we manage the way we were working previously um, and we're not necessarily yet challenging ourselves to say, look, some of these things that we're considering that, you know, big cities... Uh, we're, we're considering that that's going to persist, um, and I just wonder if these these whole levels of change that we're not fully embracing yet.
2: Uh, that sounds that sounds right. I don't. There's more efficiencies. Uh, there's more opportunities. You're right to bring in different creative resources and feel more comfortable with people patching in. But there is something. I mean, for example, Goldman Sachs, uh, the CEO David Solomon has said people need to be back in the office. And he was kind of derided as not getting and not getting it and being a boomer. famously one of the worst
1: cultures in the world, though, right? I
2: mean, you think people drop
1: down dead working at Goldman?
2: Yeah. So, look, I, I I think Goldman is easy to dunk on. I would argue that their reputation as a career accelerant. I mean, there's two sides of the contract. You've got to kind of give up your life. Um, uh, actually, I think the banker that dropped dead was at Merrill Lynch. But, anyways, the uh, I think Goldman. And um, I started Morgan Stanley. I started Investment Bank. I worked my ass off. Uh, it was awful. Uh, gave up my life for two years, and I would do it again because I got paid a lot of money and I got a chance to accelerate my career. So these organizations will, I mean, they're easy targets, but they'll continue to attract people who, at a young age, are very ambitious, want to work around the best. And I also think their cultures have, I can't believe I'm defending Goldman Sachs. Um, <laughs> They're, they're, they've also recognized, for economic reasons, that they need to carve out more accommodation for not only women, but women who decide to procreate. Uh, and I, I've actually recently been on a bunch of calls with Goldman, and I've been struck by how many how many women are now part of the senior ranks, which is wonderful. But look, I, I think this is Gold- what Goldman do, man, they bring they bring really clever, articulate, opinionated people like you
1: inside the yeah. tent. So that yes. you know, Adam Grant did something on his podcast a couple of years ago where he, he did this hero piece on that CEO, talking about oh what a dude, he's a DJ, yeah. he's a secret DJ. It's a complete vanity piece. But they just bring people like you, intelligent, articulate people in the in the tent, because you don't piss on them then. And I just I I you know. Anyone who looks at it, the notion that you can work that environment and have a stable career as a parent is a fallacy. And they don't even want it. The idea that bringing women in, Scott, man, you've
2: been sold sold a hoax, I'm sure of it. Uh, So I appreciate your viewpoint. Um, My wife worked there for five years, so I have some insight into it. Um, And worked there for five years with two kids under the age of five. Um, look, it, it, there's two sides to the trade. And, I, and y- your point is a really good one. And that is, these people are really smart and they know that the best thing to, to assuage or kind of take the wind out of the sails or, or disarm a critic is they're all kind of the, they're all incredibly high EQ people and they reach out or their PR people reach out and say, hey, Scott, would you like to have dinner with the head, the CEO of Uber and hear his vision? like no i don't want to have dinner with him and and they said well why and he says because i don't want to uh, i'm sure i'll like him and i'll stop speaking my mind and the exact same thing happened to goldman i said that david solomon dj soul was an awful dj and he was the worst fiduciary trying to trying to foist the unicorn theses that was that is we work on people and this was back when they were going to take WeWork work public and so I hear from David's PR person, who's a former Obama administration Mak, saying, "You know, congratulations, David would like to have lunch with you." And I'm like, "I have no interest in having lunch with David Solomon." And then what happens? He emails me and says, "I live around the corner from you. Let's grab breakfast." And I agree, and I meet this the guy. This is like a, like a Russian him. operation. This is how they got Giuliani. Well, and, and this is, and I meet with the guy and and no surprise and this is i'm you know confirming your point he's a really likeable smart nice guy and i find myself when i write about goldman but let me be clear i think goldman are total fucking hypocrites that they if they take those mendacious fucks, better known as robin hood public and i think they need to stop talking about volatility in the market and making big self-aggrandizing speeches about volatility in the markets while they they take Robin Hood public. So I like to think I'm still trying to be open and honest, but <laughs> to your point, when you meet these people, they're very likable. And you and you you find yourself checking back when you write. So I, I agree with you, but I've also, I also I've been co opted. I've been co-opted by Goldman, but at least I'm sort of aware of it.
1: Yeah, um, I, I find of all the things that Leafs convincing, I find they talk about changing culture really unconvincing. But the, he, projecting him as a DJ is just like this extraordinary, it's, it's just like the worst undercover cop. But uh, yeah, fair. fair. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm just, um, just I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued because along the way here, you often talk about sort of a great dispersion and things are going to be moved around. At heart, you're sort of saying that, actually, you know, for all the talk of hybrid work, work will probably remain in offices for younger people in a stage of learning. And then we might look at something
2: beyond that. But it, it sounds like a gentle evolution in the way that you're conceiving it. Yeah, well, we have a tendency, the easiest way to process information is zero ones. And most most of the dialogue around work from home is we're either gonna all go all remote or we're gonna go back to the way things used to be. And the reality is neither is true. You're going to have people who decide, companies, colleagues, superiors are going to decide, look, if you're, if you want to, if you're commuting an hour each way and you want to commute an hour each way, two days a week instead of five, that's fine. If you're, you know, hopefully the opportunity is if if you're taking care of, if you're a caregiver for a parent or a child, more flexibility. I mean, there's some real opportunities here, but to your point, we're just going to, I don't see how we don't experience, net destruction or gross destruction of demand of office space by 20 to 30 percent minimum and like all digitization digitization of any sector any category usually usually um, results in kind of the same effect i actually think the premier real estate in london and new york whether it's midtown or brooklyn or i don't know what the hot kind of cool central business district i think those rents go up because people say well we no longer need 30,000 or you know 300,000 square feet we need 80 or 100 so we're going to make it really nice and we're going to be in the best area and we're going to move back in yeah yeah we're going to move back in from canary Wharf, or i don't know what kind of a second tier area is into the hot business because if people are going to come into the office we want to make it a wonderful experience because it's more about socialization and aspiration and branding as much as it is about human proximity so i think tier one the top stuff this happens across every industry when digitization takes hold they do better it's the tier two and the tier three that just get swept off the deck uh so i think you're going to see the 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 best real estate actually go up in value but tier tier two look what's happened with malls and but look what amazon did to malls the best malls are still fine if you go to short hills or if you go to costa mesa those malls are hanging tough they're fine and Their sales per square foot are still fine. The tier two and tier three miles just going away. The interesting thing for me is that, you
1: know, along the way here, we've talked about culture in different companies and the one, and and we talked about sort of the use of office. And the one thing that I've observed, I, I dial into people who, T- talk me through their work day, and they say, I'm on back to back video calls, I'm doing all these meetings, I'm plugged into all of this. And to some extent, whether you're doing that in an office or whether you're doing that at home, it's kind of irrelevant. It's just a crazy way of working. And there's, there's, there's a few people challenging that. A few of the remote only firms, people in Camp and Automatic, they talk about look meetings are a last resort in their culture and i recognize that there's something special about engineering and software firms software products that can do that but um the just when you chat to people who are on back-to-back video calls then what people like cal newport are saying really strikes a chord with me cal newport sort of uh, provocateur really he's a, he's a professor at georgetown university computer science professor but he says that we've irrespective of where you're doing the work it's irrelevant at the moment we've obsessed ourselves with staying connected to each other on video calls on emails at the moment and it's creating this version of work that's anxious and itchy we're just constantly checking our devices for fear of of missing something and it almost feels that unless we fundamentally re-engineer all of that the, the stuff about location and offices is actually really important it has a really big bearing on people's well-being but it might be the we're missing the subplot that we really need to rewire the way that
2: we're doing our jobs right now. I think that I think that's right. I also think that anyone who's on Zoom eight hours a day, there there is something missing. When I I've been starting businesses my whole career and I used to I, I'm a big fan of I would grab three or four people three or four times a day, just run over to the desk and we jump into a conference room and attack a problem or go through I always like to go through all the key players. How's this person doing? How's this person doing? And then we go in and go, what's going on with this client? And a lot of it just couldn't, the idea of trying to schedule a Zoom call and get everyone on and logged in, it's just not as efficient. And going back to Goldman, if you're trading convertible bonds in a market that is going volatile, or you're trying to figure out the impact of a 200% surge in GameStop, having traders across the desk from each other. There's just a velocity of exchange of ideas, even reading the person's face, screaming out to somebody, price the price the 10-year. There is – we are we have definitely lost something. We've gained things, but we're going to find that certain industries are going to need to be back in the off. It's going to be very interesting. We're, we're going to be writing case studies around this for years. And I think Cal's work is fascinating. I love reading his work. Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's, I had a – brilliant discussion yesterday with robin dunbar who you might know sort of dunbar's number he he came up with this idea that human beings are only able to trust 150 people but the majority of his work is sort of a lifetime's work um fascinating stuff but he talks about the that we have this magical and invisible effect on each other when we 're around each other, so you can most visibly witness it in, when people are in choirs together or they dance together, or you know armies in the past have marched together, and the endorphin levels in their body go up, and we get it he, really interestingly, he said we get it when we laugh together and when we have storytelling, so that sense that whether you 've watched a conference presentation or someone talking and you sort of feel captivated by it there, there is some science in in that. That uh, helps but he said we just are, are unable able to get anything like these effects through a screen and i guess you know if we're thinking about a team talk of a coach of a sports team we know that to get anywhere near the emotion through a screen as they would in real life and so i i just wonder if that's the missing ingredients that we're because we can't see and because we can't measure it we're missing the fact that human beings do seem to have this magical effect on each other there's almost like this aura that
2: comes off us that we can't actually compute at the moment Uh, look i think that's right and and great true greatness uh is in the agency of others and i was even thinking i was doing uh, reviews for the people who work at section four and it was just Everything was just more muted um, doing it over Zoom. And and there's just a there's just as as a species, we are happiest when we are in motion and surrounded by others. And we can't we can't really do either of those things over Zoom. So it's not only, I mean, we're talking about productivity and efficiency and creativity. I find that work is just less joyous. My career has exploded. My my career was invented for a pandemic. I couldn't have orchestrated (laughs) this any better. Um, But the reality is it's just not as joyful. It's not as, I give, you know, it's great. I can do two talks a day. I did Verizon this morning, I'll do Salesforce tonight. I'm killing it from an economic (laughs) standpoint, from an influence standpoint. But there's nothing like being on a stage and then getting off stage and talking to people and seeing the reaction and reading the room, I am totally unable to read the room. I have no idea how this is going, Bruce. I have absolutely no idea. The strange one is that Robin Dunbar was telling me about sort of
1: touch hunger to some extent that, you know, and touching a platonic way, touching the arm of your male colleague, you know, I'm not sort of uh, getting into, into anything. But one of the things that I've I think we're also starved of is that sort of that um sense of being examined or connecting someone of just holding someone's eye line and looking into someone's eyes you know whether you're in a board meeting and someone looks at you or you're in a presentation and they and you look at someone and we're just completely robbed of that sense of exactly like you said there knowing how it's going because you look in someone's eye and they they look at you like You're dying here, or this is you're killing it here. And I think some of those things, because we've seen that video technology can do what appears to be 85% of the job, I think we're missing some of those moments of connection that have probably got far more value
2: to us than we realize. Do you have dogs, Bruce? I don't know. Okay, so as mammals, we want and we crave and we're happiest. I have two dogs. And they just sleep on top of each other. And then if one of them and then if and then where they're the second place, they're happiest is when I watch TV at night and they both jump on and lie on me. My kids, when I watch TV with my kids, when I feel most gratified and happiest and like I have a place in the earth is when they kind of unconsciously flip their leg over and just like, you know, rest their head on my shoulder as we're watching you know, as we're watching WandaVision. And unfortunately, and this is a tough topic, but because we've conflated affection with aggression or power moves or inappropriate behavior, and those are really legitimate concerns, we've taken, I think, a lot of what I'll call camaraderie or affection. I mean, other than a fist bump, it's just a very weird environment. And I used to, when I used to roam around the office, I would put my hand on someone's shoulder or I was... I wouldn't call myself affectionate, but I think that physical proximity and touch is really important. And I don't know how to thread the needle there, but I think we're definitely missing something. And as mammals, just instinctively, um, we, we crave proximity, we crave smell, and we crave touch. And if you think about the most rewarding things in life, they usually involve proximity to other people, and what I'll call reaffirmation through affection or eye contact. And I think that played an important role at work. Unfortunately, it's just become such a, you know, I don't know, I don't have an answer for it, but I think we've unfortunately conflated affection with aggression because of some bad actors and mostly, mostly male actors who abused their power. But I do think we're missing that. And I think it's, it's kind of the tragedy of the modern work era and And you're a big Twitter stockholder. Is this your first experience of Twitter spaces? It's the only reason I agreed to do this,
1: Bruce, other than your reputation as a genius. I, I um, heard you say to Kara that you wanted to try it,
2: and so yeah. I immediately crafted the email in the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right that's ex- <laughs> that is a hundred percent right. I'm a shareholder in Twitter. I think if Twitter commands a fraction of the space it occupies, its stocks going to go up. I've owned it for a year, but I'm addicted I'm physically addicted to Twitter. Uh, and they've done a terrible job of uh, monetizing that addiction and that community and that influence. They're starting to do better. But, yeah, I'm a a shareholder and and absolutely love Twitter.
1: This is fun. It's a fun space. It definitely, if if they can navigate all of the complexities of trying to police it and, you know, the the unexpected consequences of giving 200 million people access to this. But it seems like a a good use of the,
2: the follow graph that people have got. Well, for a long time, we bought into this bullshit notion that these platforms would be impossible to moderate. They threw up their arms and said, "Oh, it would be impossible to mar- moderate." Well, the reality is, we we canceled one guy's account, and a third of misinformation on election interference went away that moment. We're not talking about the realm of the of the of the possible. We're talking about the realm of the profitable, and big tech platforms have have fomented this entirely false narrative that it would be impossible to narrate these platforms. That is bullshit. They've just decided they'd rather not modulate them because they end up having to modulate the content that is most divisive and most profitable for them. If you and I started tweeting anti-vax content, it would attract a ton of heat, a ton of comments and more Nissan ads. So they are absolutely, they absolutely have the technology and the ability to moderate and modulate these platforms on Twitter, there's something like 80 accounts responsible for a disproportionate amount of misinformation, whether it's anti-vax, health, election interference. But they've just decided, no, no, we'll pretend it's impossible such that we can sell more Nissan ads. Hmm. And I think that these platforms are coming to the conclusion, and so are investors, they're letting your platform be weaponized, uh, to being a sedi- uh, handmade to sedition. Is not good for shareholder value so i'm hopeful that the immunities are kicking in and i think when you look at platforms like snap and pinterest they're trying to starch their hat wide i think apple's trying to do the same thing i think facebook and google are pretty much irredeemable at this point but i think there's still hope for twitter to come to the light i see the good in them they just need to come to the good side of the force
1: <laughs> how are you doing for time have you got time to take a couple of questions from people i know we're over what you initially said
2: Anything for you, Bruce. Despite the fact I had I know nothing about you. Good. Okay, we. That's all the better. Uh, look, I've brought Lindsay Patterson to
1: the floor. Lindsay's <laughs> a hot shot in the world of marketing. Lindsay, ask us something.
3: Oh, thank you so much, Bruce. I did a. I, I feel like I'm. I'm slightly blushing actually because. Scott retweeted uh, me saying I was looking forward to this talk. It's my first Twitter Spaces talk, and actually, so uh, Scott is one of my professional crushes. Come on, with, cut to it. Let's along with question. Byron no, Sharp. No, no, go on. Don't <laughs> go interrupt, go 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 <laughs> uh, So I was interested. Um, I've discovered that I'm a big hugger and don't be terrified, Bruce, to your point about this, but this whole touching that the missing people in real life, I think is really interesting. Today, I went to the office for a real treat uh, and it felt like that. So I definitely think there will be some kind of hybrid because I think the concept of I was interested to, to listen and hear someone talk about the misnomer of work life balance and the premise being there's no such thing as work-life balance because that assumes that you you do your work in order to then live your life. And to me, work is part of my life. I love my job and that's all one thing. What I think is different is a, is a work-family balance. So my question to both of you is, is that a, a first world problem, a white collar concept, or even worse, a marketing concept? But I you know, how do we begin to, should we be separating or thinking about the separation? And I think the separation is about family, because if you're, as you said, Scott, the mum trying to work and homeschooled, it's really about work and family, whereas work-life balance or work-life integration is totally different. Thank you.
2: Uh, uh, Bruce, that was for both of us. Do you want to go first?
3: Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, this this is one of the intriguing things. I, I spoke to uh, Hedge Fund the other day and they told me something that I've heard from a few people over the course of the last few months, which is, Scott, we're all looking forward to June the 21st here where, where we're allowed to go on the rampage and normal civilization will resume. And so um, but they've said uh, June 21st. Um, while you might be planning the, uh, to, to go inside a nightclub for the first time in 10 years, we actually want you in the office today. And the, the really interesting thing from it is that you realise that there is a gendered element to this. The, the generally, you know, women who've had the the hardest time, who've got the domestic responsibilities, have actually found that homeschooling aside, there's been a degree of ability to actually get their balance, to to decide that work doesn't have to be this frenetic commute, this 74-minute commute every day, that they can get some balance. And... Trying to, it's, I was on this thing last week and someone said, well, look, of course, the patriarchy wants people back in the office because it works very well for the patriarchy. So I think there is a diversity element to this. And I think anyone who says, you know, family balance, then hybrid working seems to be a really important part or, or allowing people to say where they're going to work seems to be a really important part of that consideration. It's almost like you can't have diversity and inclusion without some very significant concession to changing the way that we're working in my mind. Uh,
2: So first off, thanks for that question. And I would say that I hope that you continue to uh, hug people. I just don't think there's any professional or personal way of of instilling confidence in people than hugging them. So I I hope you continue to have that confidence, even, even in a workplace, the, uh, in terms of work-life balance. So I, I do a, a survey every year of my class, and I say, all right, where do you expect to be economically? And almost all of them, and it's selection it's, it's bias because these are MBA students, they don't expect to be in the top 10% economically. They expect to be in the top 1%. And what I tell them is I get that, that's fine, but that requires a sober conversation. And the sober conversation, the first component of that is work-life balance for you will be a myth. I just don't buy it. I, I don't yeah. know anyone who is really successful economically, unless they're genius, talented, and you should assume you're not that person, who doesn't spend a good 20 years of doing nothing but working. I don't, I'm not saying it was the right thing to do. I don't remember anything but work from the age of 22 to 45. It cost me my hair. It cost me my wife. And quite frankly, it was worth it. Um, if, if, so this notion of work-life balance, you just have to have an honest conversation around what you mean or what your expectations are, because it's, it's a trade-off. Now, Now, we have to propagate the species. We have to have secure, loving households. We like to think that if we offer people balance, that everything will just work out and it'll be good for shareholder value. We have to have a sober conversation that says, if we want a productive society— if we want kids that are productive humans, if we want kids to grow up to be good citizens, good leaders, good parents themselves, we have to make accommodations. Women have largely closed the wage gap. Under the age of 30, women with college degrees have closed the wage gap with their male counterparts. Where they go to 83 cents on the dollar is when they decide to use their ovaries and have kids. So until societies decide to make an investment Either through tax credits or companies make forward-leaning investments and say, not only are we going to tolerate women having kids, because that's kind of what they do now. They say, okay, we'll give you eight weeks for brain development, a postpartum. That's not that's not an investment. That was their table stakes. Until corporations and society decide to do what some northern European countries have done and say, we are going to make forward-leaning, costly investments in the health of the next generation by ensuring women can maintain their career trajectories making sure they maintain their salaries, giving them a year, paid maternity leave. We're just not going to get there. So I think a sober conversation around work-life balance and and what your expectations are, and also as the child of a single immigrant mother, I saw what was available to my parents when they split up. Neither of them had high school educations. Both were talented. My dad went on to make $60,000 a year as a salesman for ITT because he's a charming man with a Scottish accent. My mom was smarter and harder working, and her entire professional opportunities were to be a travel agent or a secretary. And we made $11,000 a year. And so until corporate America and governments say we have to make forward-leaning investments in the species, we're just not going to get there because part of this woke bullshit is thinking that we're all the same no we're not my wife can hear my kid shuffling his sheets it's four in the morning and she'll go he's coming in in five four three and i don't hear anything so we have to recognize that that, the one part or half the species plays a more important role in the formative years and there's no getting around it if we want to maintain women in the workforce it's going to cost us money there's no there's no like we talk a big game that it'll all work out. No, it isn't. It's going to be expensive and it'll be worth it.
1: More from my discussion with Scott Galloway after this.
0: Hold up. What was that?
1: Uh, just quickly because because i guess what you're saying scott is thank you Lindsay. by the way um Pleasure. i guess what you're saying is that we are we're sort of gradually edging that there might be a bit of regulation that's going to sort of edge us somewhere something there i saw a report yesterday saying that the big opportunity of the moment now is that we need to switch our obsession from people's working hours to people's working outputs right it's obvious self-evident stuff but one of the consequences of that might be that um the firms say we want fewer fixed costs and we're just going to hire far more freelancers and and so if you played that out there is the chance for small nimble firms to have like this freelance revolution where they're just based on these variable costs where they're bringing in people for specific tasks and that for me seems like a big opportunity where i guess you're to some extent mired down in this idea that if we're going to change things and that by its very nature would be very diverse and inclusive but but i guess to some extent you're mired down in how can we just edge the current system marginally better and i guess you've got a pessimistic take whether
2: we even can
1: do you think there's a scope for moving from fixed to variable cost for for employees
2: yeah i like uh, fixed to variable is a, a different a different conversation it's it's Oftentimes, fixed a variable is Latin for not providing people with health care or figuring out a way to clock them out or giving them software such that we can circumvent minimum wage laws such as Uber. And by the way, shout out to the UK for saying no to that bullshit and deciding that those employees are that they're employees. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I think, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of these persons around fate. I don't think the world is what it is. I think the world is what we make of it. But going back to the conversation around work-life balance and closing the wage gap when women decide to have children, we need more working mothers on boards of companies. I serve on the board of a lot of public and private companies. And when it's all white dudes, we have a tendency to go with the white dude as CEO who has the tendency to hire more white dudes in senior positions. And none of us think of ourselves as bigoted or racist, but we're a tribal species. And so I I believe what Germany has done, Germany has decided that boards have to have worker and union representation. And what do you know? Their middle class has just done a lot better over the last 30 years than the rest of Western Europe and the U.S. Until we put more working mothers on the boards of companies, this is just going to be a lot of woke speak. So I think there are certain concrete steps we can take. If you aren't paying women with children the same as, you know, dudes without kids, then we're going to, you know, figure out taxation, make you more liable to lawsuits, whatever it might be. But I think there's a series of concrete steps we can take to affect this as opposed to just watching MSNBC and listening to the BBC over and over and over. Got it. But on one hand there, you're saying woke
1: speak and and almost, well, very pejoratively. And then the next you're saying we need to Pay people equally, and and I, I I'm I'm struggling with where that put uh, what what's woke about
2: specifically when we when it comes to work what's the wokeness that you're taking issue with? Well, I, okay, so I think we we talk about paternity leave. We assume that men and women are the same, and they're not. Women shoulder a disproportionate amount of the burden at home, and to think that. To think that that's going to change, I think, ignores basic elements of our species. We're just going to have to make investments. I think. I think woke woke culture uh, this has decided a long time ago that men and women are exactly the same, and to not acknowledge our differences is to be politically incorrect or sexist. So, I think a lot of what we do on the far left ends up shooting. You know, we end up. I I, I think on the left we end up we end up more focused on being right than being effective. And because I think a lot of the solutions probably around closing the wage gap feel sexist or weird or, or, or controversial. But anyways, uh, it, it probably, it's probably another talk show.
1: Yeah. Scott, I just want to thank you for, for joining us today. Um, a really pre- Look, as, a, as an experiment, it was, it was a fabulous one. But uh, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm really grateful for your time. Is there, is there anything you want to say in, past, in parting?
2: Uh, no, I wish everyone the best. I hope everyone gets vaccinated. I think this is a, an exciting uh, time to rethink our lives. I think the profound opportunity coming out of COVID is to invest uh, for the cementing and repair of, of uh, key relationships. And I'm excited about 20 or hopeful, I should say, about 2021 and am planning to move to London in fall of 2022. So uh, hopefully I'll get a light? chance yeah, my 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 parents. Dad was born in Glasgow. My mom in London. And I've always wanted to live in the UK. And we're gonna we're gonna try and make the move in fall oh, of 2020, 2020, 2022. So, anyways, hopefully, I'll get a chance to meet you and some of these other people. It's sensational!
1: Thank you for joining us. Thank you uh, to the audience as well. I really appreciate uh, everyone jo- joining. And uh, it was good. Thank you to the team who built Twitter Spaces. Cheers, Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you to Scott. As you heard me mention, if you've persisted this far, is that I've got an interview coming up with Robin Dunbar. So Robin Dunbar is the guy who's famous for this Dunbar's number. The idea that we can only trust 150 people. And the immediate thing in the world of social media is that you're probably thinking, 150 people? I've got more Facebook friends than that. I've got more WhatsApp contacts than that. I've got more people on my phone than that. He's going to describe precisely what the the relevance of 150 is brilliant discussion uh robin as as i discussed there was got robin's got a lot of ideas that are very timely right now and uh he was in discussion for his his book that's just come out called friends so i'm gonna release that one next week thank you so much for for joining i do run a, a newsletter on workplace culture and you'll find that uh, if you go to eatsleepworkrepeat.com and uh, you can join sort of thousands of other people signing up to receive that